0: Welcome. You're listening to a Mr. Thrive Media production.
1: Hello, Thrivers. Wishing you all a fantastic end of the week. We just came out of Memorial Day weekend when I had this awesome interview with Richard Clayman, an all-around filmmaker who represents Cloudwalker Films. Richard comes from an extensive background that covers almost every single area in film, from producing, to directing, to writing, and even acting. Richard really does it all. Today, his B2B company services a multitude of businesses. You definitely should check him out. When you listen to this episode, you'll recognize how humble Richard is, despite the amazing clout of his resume. I cannot wait for you to hear this interview. Also, the artist's upsurge is officially live. The app is launched. Our launch event was huge. Thank you to everyone who came. As for signing up, it's currently free to create a profile. Go on to MrThrive.com. Go to the artist upsurge tab and sign up as either a mentor or mentee to be paired with your person today. Without further ado, let's get this show on the road. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. You have stumbled upon the Mr. Thrive podcast, where together we discover established artists. Filmmaker Richard Klayman. Richard, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Doing really good. Love to hear it. Love to hear it. Yeah, no, uh, we just came back from an awesome Memorial Day weekend. We are back, we are energized, we're feeling good. I hope everyone else on this podcast feels the same. But before we begin the Season 3 warm-up trivia, I, I, I wanted to give people a little bit of insight as to who Richard Clayman is. We we met each other through this network called Provisors. Richard has a really interesting background in film And uh, I think uh, the biggest thing here is that one one of the one of the big things as well is that he was a a teacher at USC and has done a lot of things. But Richard, why don't don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, got into the film business uh, way back in the 70s, doing uh, doing sports while I was still in college and did Rams games, USC football and basketball. And regional sporting events and the rant coaches shows stuff like that ra- uh, raiders games things like that learned videotape very well which led me into working for uh norman lear and bud york and jerry Parencio at their companies um doing shows like uh, all in the family Maud jefferson's good times one day at a time facts of life different strokes sanford and son mary hartman on and on and on and on and on uh became head of production there in my uh, mid-20s and then uh left that uh, at the end of five years, after moving us to Universal to pursue more creative things, continued writing, which I had been doing, headed towards directing. Uh, and while still producing shows here and there, I also became an actor and did that for about uh, ten years because it was something that is uh, creatively very fulfilling. And it taught me an awful lot about uh, how to be a better director, about how to be a better writer. and then and then I so for did that for about ten years, stopped acting professionally at that point and really went back to producing and directing and writing. Uh, As I said, the uh, the USC School of Cinematic Arts asked me to come over and be a professor there, which I did in television production, especially focused on sitcoms because that was what the background that I have, a very strong part of my background. Uh, And then about 16 years ago, I'm sitting here in my office and I'm seeing videos come up pretty easily on the internet. And I thought, well, there's not going to be anyone who really remotely knows what I know who's going to do this. But I was it was time for me to get out of the Hollywood culture, which was never really that appealing to me. It works for some people. For me, it was an unpleasant one. The work is great. And so uh, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to as a freelance person, the way you get out of Hollywood is you simply stop pursuing work, which is what I did and uh, hung out a shingle. Uh, my company's Cloud Walker Films. This is Cloud Walker Video Works, which essentially, I guess, is a division of that, and began to learn that form of the art, which is very different doing website videos, doing uh, um, uh, fundraising films for nonprofits, doing animated videos. And so these are all things that I've done over the years, pretty much probably, probably established some of, of the ground rules for what I do. Uh, and I've always had a differentiator in that I could make a $50 million feature. I could make a network series and network pilots and even big theater, which I've done. And it is, it is, um, I think all of that background makes it, uh, seamless and easy and, uh, very
1: effective for my clients. No surprise there. And I want to say as well, that like, like, there's a lot to unpack in that monologue that Richard just explained in his career. And that was the short version of it. And we're going to unpack more of that. We're also going to be unpacking really how to establish your foundation as an artist on this podcast. So before we get deep into that, I think we got to start this podcast right with our season three warm up trivia. Richard, are you ready for that? I suppose I have no idea what it is. I may mean, right. any any guesses as to what it would be about um,
2: How many championships have the Lakers won?
1: Ooh, you almost were were accurate, but not quite. No, really. Okay, I'm gonna gonna quiz you today on USC trivia because that's where you—that's where you toss. That's where you. Mm -hmm. Here is question one. You ready? Mm Mm-hmm. What is the name of the Trojan horse? Is it A. Tommy the Trojan? B. Traveler the horse? C. Wilbur? Or D red beauty traveler and and tommy trojan is the guy who rides it nicely done yeah a lot i I definitely would have guessed tommy the trojan and uh no i found out later on uh putting this trivia together it was actually travel with the horse nicely done good job
2: yeah i think they're in like the seventh iteration of traveler i i uh and he
1: comes out and he runs every time they score a touchdown runs around the place question two what was the original use of usc's fight on song was it a to teach cheerleaders to stay on beat, B, cheer up sick and injured athletes, C, inspire the football team, or D, motivate soldiers.
2: Well, since you're saying the original,
1: I might say motivate soldiers. Correct. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, nicely done. So USC's Fight On song was used to inspire combat-bound troops in the Aleutians campaign during World War II. The song was written by Milo Sweet, who was a dental student. Hmm. interesting Interesting. stuff yeah question three ron howard is one of the most prolific students to come out of usc's school of cinematic arts who of high industry praise was also ron howard's classmate was it a brian grazer b john wayne c john carpenter or d peter siegel well
2: john wayne who was his real name is marion morrison and he played football at usc uh is is way before Ron howard and brian grazer's his partner so i'd have to say brian grazer correct yeah it was brian grazer and in imagine was... films that's right and i worked for them i did a pilot
1: for them actually what'd you do for them i did a pilot called cowboy joe okay cowboy yeah. joe so i i looked up his imdb stuff he's done a lot of stuff he did curious george legacy and parenthood he's got all these other things involved but you did a pilot for him that i mean that's that's how Far reaching your experience is, Richard. Is that not you? just that, but one of the actors who
2: I coached, I coached her into eventually uh-huh. from a much smaller role. Okay. Uh, it was our target getting her the job as the elementary school teacher for <laughs>
1: Jim Carrey in The Grinch. Right. Mary Stein. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Yep. So let me ask you this, Richard. Your strength, as we talked about before this podcast, and as we kind of realized that you have this strong foundation. What does it mean to have a foundation in the world of arts and entertainment?
2: Well, I think that that all of the things that, that I've done at a high level, directing and writing and acting and producing, even being a production executive, doing those things for most studios and networks and now doing it for real people in the real world, so to speak, uh, in, in Cloudwalker Video Works, I think that they're all branches of the same tree. And as you know, and as I know very well, and the people that we deal with, improvisers, the professionals, every decision you make is uh, is informed by your experience. You know, Frank Capra said in his book that really a director's job, a filmmaker's job, is to make decisions all day. You have costuming coming to you, should we? Should I put her in this or that? You have location person coming, would this be a better location or that? You have actors asking you, should I pause here? You have editors asking you, uh, did you like this cut or should we cut away to something else? Uh, you have your composer. I mean, all these people, they're coming to you. You need to have the unified vision And to me, that's what being an artist is all about. When you are the head of a team of people who know what each one who knows what they do better than you know what they do, hopefully, Mm -hmm. you're simply helping them along with a unified vision on the decisions that they make to do certain things. And that is where I think the more you know, the more things you know about various parts of of your business, the better you're going to do, the better your decision making is going to be.
1: Right, and I think a parallel to what you're kind of describing, I, I can think of two directors. I think have the the most foundation when it comes to their work. Both, I, th- I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe both were self taught. First one is Orson Welles, because mm-hmm. when you talk about a, when you talk about unified vision, when he created Citizen Kane, he instilled the power and kind of delegated every individual department. To really come up with their own story and to create an incredibly nuanced, multi-layered narrative on who Citizen Kane was, and then the second director I'm thinking of when you said that was Quentin Tarantino, who was self-taught because he had a, he simply had a fascination for movies when he worked at a VHS store when he mm-hmm. just sold when he sold when he sold and rented videos from a little video store, a little hole-in-the-wall store, um, where he would just watch videos all day. And I think the one thing that Quentin Tarantino said that Orson Welles would agree with is that if you want to make films, you got to love films.
2: Yes, I I agree with that. It, it, it is, uh, I mean, you can make films and not love them, and there are many people who do, but you see that. You feel right. that. You get right. that in the product. It is. I would add Frank Capra to your group, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you should read his his autobiography. It's remarkable. I would love it. And, and when you break down his pictures, I mean, he's known as, uh, they, they called it Capricorn. But he's, he's known for feel-good pictures. But not all his pictures are feel-good. And not all the actors have an easy time of it. Not all the characters. Look at It's a Wonderful Life. It's about a guy who's trying to commit suicide. Right, <laughs> I mean, true. That's that you know, and, and that's pretty serious stuff. But it is those guys. Quentin brings to bear what I consider to be real creativity. What what Quentin does, what what Orson did, is they don't create something new, but they take what they know and they make it their own, and and that is to me the essence of creativity. Don't don't feel like I've got to come up with something that nobody's ever come up with before. Just trust that if you take what you know and you turn it your way to fit your story, to fit your vision, that
1: that is that is true creativity. I couldn't agree more. And it sounds like at the root of all of this is the ability to simply be decisive when you're able to you have to, to make decisive. decisions. That's yeah. what
2: Capra said as part of that comment. He right, said, right. you know, you're going to be wrong 50 percent of the time, but you're 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 done. If you don't, if you hesitate, if you don't make the decision, you know, and that's part of leading a team as a filmmaker is that, is that you need to, for example, a director of photography, the directors of photography are are notorious for going their own way, right? No matter what you say, right? But they will go their own way if they feel you hesitating, because they're going to protect themselves for their framing, their lighting, and their camera movement, and all of those things, they're going to protect themselves unless you're very clear when you look at citizen kane i mean the 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 chiaroscuro lighting and the and and the angles that he used the way things moved it is uh it it is one of the most remarkable things of it but if orson wells doesn't relay that vision clearly and consistently then it never would have turned out that way i think it was greg tolan
1: shot that right I, I believe so. I could yeah. be terribly wrong in agreeing with that statement, but I, I believe you're right about that. Do you know who his editor was on that? Who else? Very young.
2: Robert Wise. Really? Who did Sound of Music and of many, many other great yeah. pictures. Yeah. Um, and, and I went to a, a screening of Citizen Kane in the smaller theater at the Directors Guild. And it was going to be a, uh, they were going to have Robert Wise speak afterwards. And he was probably in his 80s at that point. Wow. So I sat back in the back of this little room near the aisle. And uh, one seat away from the aisle. And just as the lights go down, who comes in and sits right next to me but Robert Wise. Now, so for me, suddenly on a human level, I'm thinking, what is he thinking? He remembers all he was a young man. You know, he's he's near the end of his career and his life now. And he's he was a, 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 a just starting in the business, working with this genius and bringing his own genius to it. Right. right. And I, so I, I ended up watching him more than I watched the film. To see how he reacted to things, and wondering what's going on in his head. Right. That's the wonderful thing about a
1: creative life is that all of these things live forever. And And, yeah, yeah, but oh no, I was gonna say you know, opposite of Robert Weiss, I know Alfred Hitchcock um, was always found outside of the theater during premieres of movies. Right. Um. well, this was a tribute. He couldn't. He he couldn't bear to watch people watch his movie. Yeah.
2: No. No. I I've got that. It is. It is. Uh. You know, there are some people, Jerry West couldn't
1: watch playoff games right just could not watch them right so you know. but going back to the theme of being decisive I I had an experience uh at with indecisive uh, indecisive director and this was um a college film that I was working I think it was either a USC or UCLA film as a matter of fact but it was a student film from one of those two colleges I, I did a lot of sound mixing work for a lot of those different small independent films and whatnot we were in Koreatown in this director's apartment, which was the setting of it. And I remember every individual set this uh, every every individual decision that this ma- director made, he couldn't make a decision. And, to, to you know, he, he every every time there was a question that stumped him, he would go outside for a cigarette. And it was the most annoying thing because it was wasting a lot of time. We'd have to wait from the five minutes to finish up his cigarette and then he'd come back and then the DP was already setting up for the next shot. Just like you said, DPs are known for going on their own on their own path. This DP made it a point to just say, no, this director is, doesn't know what he's doing. I have the shot. I already know what's going on. So I'm going to go on without him. And that's exactly what happened in that situation. I remember we were getting ready to roll. So, you know, the director really does need to be a figure of authority and has to earn the respect of their crew by making decisive decisions. And if you don't have that, there's no foundation. That's right. That's right. And I, I've seen it. I've seen it happen time and time again. That wasn't the only step that happened. The other moment, I remember I was actually working on a, on a TV commercial. This was now with uh, Gordon Ramsay as the main actor actually. And he's mm-hmm. a really nice guy. I liked Gordon Ramsay a lot. Everyone thinks he's a really angry person, but he's not. But when I was uh, doing sound for this TV commercial, what happened was I, I had been outside at the time, they were doing an MOS shot, which just stands for it's it's a, it's a Latin phrase, but just means there's no audio in it. So it's actually down. not it's actually not a Latin phrase. Oh, what is, is it? One French? of, the, one, of the, one of the
2: earliest sound guys in Hollywood was German, and he used to say, "We're doing this mid out sound."
1: Yeah, that's what it is. So yep. it became MOS. Yes, yes. Thank you. For, good catch. Good catch. Mid out sound. Yeah. <laughs> but what happened was, I was standing outside when it was an MOS shot when there was no audio inside, and this guy kind of strolled on the set. And he waved hello to the security guard, and the security guard let him in. And then he walks up to me, and the red light's on above me in the soundstage. And um, the PA, who was on Firewatch, wasn't there, so I had to go and suddenly do his job. And I was like, hey, you can't come in. He looked at me with the most confused face. He says, I'm the director. And I'm like, oh, oh." Okay, and I let him in. It was very awkward, and right as I let him in, you know, the light from the outside shines into the soundstage. Everyone's yelling, "Who opened the door? What the heck?" And and then they realize what had happened. They go, "Oh, oh, it, it's okay. It's okay. We'll we'll let this happen." But the but the production went on without this director, who you know wasn't taking authority on his job. Yeah, yeah, and, and
2: that makes perfect sense. I I you know it, it's clear that the one dispensable job in Hollywood, major job, is director. Every film could be made without the director. That's know, the actors interesting. know how to do their job, the DP knows how to do their job, the 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 everybody. Everybody I've never heard in the anyone say that they know how to do their job. So okay. what you so of course you end up with a lot of people directing who really don't know what they're doing. Right. And and yet when you find that right director, when you find that really good director, and 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 as an actor, you know what particularly, because directors are usually pushing you in directions you shouldn't go or giving you general direction that you can't, you know, you've got to interpret. It's like, you have to have subtitles to interpret what it is they're saying, because you have to interpret into something that you can do, not into a general feeling, you know, right. be angry or well, uh, you know, be angry. What does that mean? Right. You know, for, for amateur actors, that means just shout and hit things and jump up and down, but that's, You can be way angrier by doing none of those things. And and so you need to know yourself as an artist and be able to interpret it to what works best for you. But, um, you know, I've seen many, many productions where the director uh, probably not only didn't help, but probably hurt the final product. But when you got the right one, when you got the right one, everybody gets it. And their their lives are way easier, and it comes back to that unified vision and the willingness to make decisions based on that without any deep thought
1: about them. I I think that's so interesting. So when you are saying when you get enough into the zone, so to speak, when you're when you're really involved in, into being a dec- decisive decision maker, the decisions become more natural. It's kind of like a learning curve, if you will.
2: Yeah, I mean you got to trust it. Yeah, it's like when you're an actor, you know, when you when when they say action, you know, it's time to stop thinking. You jump off the cliff you know if you if you prepared well you know you're going to get caught right if if you haven't then you're going to crash so so you prepare well and that's what you do as a director you know you know it you get it you know you're clear on it that doesn't mean you have the answer to every question that that you've thought through the answers but you know that your answer is coming from some place of of strength some place of power and and a unified place so that, that, uh, uh, but on the other hand, if you're, it's very much a collaborative medium, medium. So if you make a decision and someone uh, says, well, wait, what about this? And you know, it's better than the one you made. And it still stays with your vision. You know, don't have such an ego, which of course is rampant in Hollywood. Don't have such an ego that you don't say, you know what, that is a good idea. And do that. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I I think a literal example of that kind of dedication, and that kind of ability to just kind of like tune out from the surroundings and really be involved. I think one of the most involved figures I've ever seen in Hollywood, ever, is probably Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Cruise, who acts in his own movies, but also, you know, has kind of taken over the Mission Impossible franchise as one of the main producers of it. And especially with his recent involvement in the new movie coming out, this is not, <laughs> we're not sponsored, but um, the new Top Gun movie coming out right. I don't. Which I, I, hear, don't
2: know. Is, I hear is terrific.
1: I hear it's terrific, but also did you did you hear about the revolutionary way that that movie is directed? No. So first of all, they had to get cameras inside actual jets and they taught the actors themselves how to fly jets and get on the same level of expertise as Tom Cruise. That's mm-hmm. the first thing. The second thing is that on top of having to learn how to fly a military-grade jet, mm-hmm. these normal actors like Miles Teller had to also learn how to operate the camera and direct themselves and their emotions inside the cockpit while flying. Yeah. Well, rehearsal, just, rehearsal takes care of a lot of that. Rehearsal does take care of a lot of that. But and once,
2: you, once you've rehearsed, now you can. Right. I mean, that, that's a perfect example of jumping off the cliff. Now you can, you, you, you can just surrender it all and react to what's happening around you and know
1: that you've got it covered. Right, right. I, I really do think that, uh, this movie is going to be pretty groundbreaking on a, on a, uh, process-based, uh, category, the same way that films can be groundbreaking in technology or technique and whatnot. This film is going to be groundbreaking in the process of its, uh, filmmaking. And I really do look forward to seeing, uh, and getting this new experience in film. And that's when, that's how just film gets better and better is just these different figures, as you mentioned, who have the decisiveness to be. A foundational leader on these sets. Yep. And I like that concept that um being a director you don't need to be a director. There, there sorry there isn't a need for a director, but if the director's there, they have to really be assertive and, and have uh, the right decisions be willing to make 50% of the mistakes as a uh, Frank Capra had said. So I think yeah. that's really well said. And it's sure. probably not 50%, but 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 you got to be
2: willing to have that happen. Sure. And and, sure. and so you you uh you do your work as a, I mean, speaking specifically as a director, but I think in any of the, the artistic capacities, there's always people under you that you are you are directing sure. uh, in a certain sense. Uh, okay. But it is, uh, you need to do your work and your preparation. And part of that is not hesitating to learn about aspects, which may not be your career, but that you will know well enough to be able to give uh, a good response uh, and maybe come up with an idea or two
1: for uh, the people who really know their particular art. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, there's a parallel there with being an entrepreneur. Um, of course, absolutely. You know, and Richard, you're, you're an entrepreneur with Cloud Walker Films. Uh, you have been helping various businesses, this B2B service with filmmaking. I, myself, our parallel, you and me, is that I help, B2, I, I help businesses with this B2B service of podcast production. Yes, absolutely. Um, hence why you do. Yeah, right now, of course. And it's, it's always just amazing to see how decisiveness really is the end all be all. In fact, there's a, there's a really wonderful person in our network named Michael Uh huh. Have you met him yet? I have met him, but I don't know him well. He talks a lot about branding he's a he's a branding and communication specialist he's a really mm-hmm. wonderful individual and um one thing that michael said is that the people that he shed light on is that people who believe in their need more always achieve what they are looking for he didn't say it specifically like that but that's how i'm interpreting it and i very much it what he said resonated with me because it applies to being a leader it applies that if you simply just believe in in your decisions even if you make a mistake you'll you'll still find success so long as you're confident and decisive in your decisions of course and that sounds and,
2: and look the confidence comes from knowledge right right you know, you, there's a
1: security in knowledge uh which then means you got to do the hard work first sure tell tell me about cloud walker uh films and 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 some of the some of the major projects you've gotten the chance to work on
2: Dude, dude. Well, in Cloudwalker right. Video Works, it, Video is, Works. it is. Yeah. And well, the, I mean, it's part of the, the corporation is Cloudwalker Films. Okay. So I did the centennial film for the city of Culver City. So and which is interesting now that my provisors group, uh, since we moved, is now Culver City instead of Playa Vista. Right. So here we are. That's my voice. And I wrote it and I did it. And it it is uh, and it's a film I'm very proud of. I've done uh, a lot of, of nonprofit fundraising film work. Uh, Which is also very meaningful to me in that you are, the stories are really good about people who uh, need help from those nonprofits uh, Mm -hmm. or benefit from help from Mm -hmm. them. And then I do a lot of animated videos, which I, which here's, it explains one of the difference between me and the other people in my business. They call them explainer videos. I know very well that people don't want things explained to them. Uh, They want to know what's in it for them. So I call them value proposition videos. And that's very, that differential differentiation is very important in terms of that sort of unified vision thing I was talking about before. When you approach something as an explainer video, you're going to do it differently. And you're going to make different decisions than if you approach it as a value proposition video, right? Mm. What's in it for the viewer, for the audience. And of course, any filmmaker is all about the audience. You get you know, the first thing is you got to put yourself in the audience's place. You have to be able to instinctively be in their seat, where they are, what, where, I mean, being at the computer was very different than the world I was in before, where you're watching a TV show, um, uh, somebody, or somebody is in a theater, right? A movie theater or uh, theatrical production, bringing all of those precepts to play, then the, the, probably the core thing. And the thing I started with improvisers was to do website videos homepage video, about us page video, services mm-hmm. page video. What I came to is that a minute is the ideal length. What I do that's uh, completely and utterly different than any of my competition is I write them because I know how to write them. Right. So well, I can do a 15 minute interview, uh, get what I need for say three one minute pieces, write the scripts and all they got to do is look at the script and and give me their thoughts. And uh, and then we shoot it. it is, uh, it's a very easy process because it does not need to be more difficult. But it starts with me being able to write. It starts with me being able to direct non-pros uh, in performance. It starts with me understanding the difficulty of being on the other side of the camera, particularly as someone who's not used to it. So I give them really very little to memorize. And and the rest of it, they just read and we cover it with B-roll. And it is the result is that they get a first meeting on the web. So in other words, most of my clients get their business from referrals, not from searches. But there is a, an, a search element to it in that most people, when they're getting referrals for a high-level professional attorney, uh, accountant, other financial people, insurance people, whoever it might be, mm-hmm. when they get referrals, they're going to generally gather two or three or four referrals. And the first thing they're going to do, and again, this is understanding primal, primal website behavior is that that visitor is going to go to the websites of those three or four referrals. Now, they're going to read about my client's competitors. They're going to look at a photo of them. And then they're going to go to my client's site and they're going to meet them. Now, if my client's not for them, they wouldn't have been any more for them had they met them in person and wasted everybody's time. But if my client is for them, it will happen as one provider's member tells me that every single client, potential client who calls her Uh, basically says it was a pleasure meeting you. I feel like I know you already. Every single one
1: of them. And in the website world, that's what I'm doing. That's pretty amazing. It goes to show that content is king. And it goes to show that the numerous talents that you have, Richard, you really do bring a lot to the table. And we're going to talk more about what you bring to the table in a second, but we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Hey, Thrivers, do you hear a certain difference in quality? That's because this podcast quality is made possible by Squadcast. Virtual recordings have become easier than ever with Squadcast's studio-quality SaaS remote recording platform. This cloud-based technology secures your files and minimizes post-production for all podcast producers. And I should know because I am one. Heighten the experience of your podcast by clicking the link in the show notes below.
0: This podcast is a Mr. Thrive Media production. Mr. Thrive Media builds communities through its content marketing and networking events. During this pandemic, our dedicated team commits to the value of connection by producing podcast content while extending a helping hand towards artists and entertainment professionals. Mr. Thrive Media puts its values first by supporting small businesses and empowering emerging artists. For more information, visit www.mrthrive.com. That's mrthrive.com.
1: And we're back. Today we are here with Richard Clayman of Cloud Walker Video Works. I can't emphasize enough the amount of talent that you have. You come from <laughs> this incredibly colorful resume of work. I think in, in, in your previous life where you were working on all these different productions, you, you at one point you were an acting teacher, you were an actor. You were a director, a producer, an executive producer. You were a writer. You did all these different things within the film industry and had kind of an octopus effect of reaching out in every individual direction. Of those, which one had the toughest learning curve?
2: Well, I've always been a writer. So yeah. that was something that that although it is – I'm always growing is that I'm actually working on my – Fourth novel, right now. It is, awesome. it is, uh, so, but you always grow as an artist, hopefully. You're never satisfied and you always grow. But I always was a writer. So that can't, that, you know, there was a facility to that that was, uh, not difficult. I, I, I think that, uh, w- what I enjoy doing the most, which is acting of all things, uh, it's the most enjoyable in the process, is, uh, was, one of the most difficult for me to learn because i knew nothing about it i had a sense of directing i understood camera angles and lighting and movement and all of those things producing i learned at a very young age and that's really just you know fitting pieces of a puzzle together in the most efficient way possible uh and making sure you don't miss any of those pieces but acting was uh i you know i've been a pianist since i was a kid so there's something relative to that especially when you're improving, there's something that you can relate to that sort of free form expression. Sure. That is based on a, a, a well-practiced ability mm. because you can't improvise well unless you uh, can physically do it. Right. Uh, so the physicality doesn't get in your way. And so as an actor though, I needed to learn to the value of things like playing an opposite. In other words, the that what walks in the room with you goes without saying i'll give you i'll give you a story about that um i was in in an acting class with the best acting coach i've ever seen and i i happened to fall upon him after i'd been in another acting class for a couple of years and i was up on stage and i, I was doing a scene with an actress that we memorized so as sort of scene study class and i uh i was playing a, i was about 32 and i was playing an attorney about 32, which couldn't be a better fit for me. And so I'm up there, and I'm doing it. And he says, uh, we get about halfway through, and he says, Richard, stop. So I stop. He says, you're doing great, which, (laughs) of course, when somebody stops you, you think, okay, yeah, but, and, and he said, but when you walk on stage, before you say a word, I get your size, I get your energy, I get your intelligence, I get your focus, I get all of those things about you. Right. So every choice you make should reside in the world of the town fool, of the village idiot. Hmm. And it was like a this flash of a revelation, which we have periodically in our lives, where I realized that with the first play I ever did, I was really Clark Kent, not Superman. Um, and I went with, with glasses and, and, and and tape on them and, and fixing them all the time and listening to, to like this, this, what turned out to be a flame that I was drawn to as the moth of a girl in a diner, uh, alone at night. And it was, and yet, although I didn't have much dialogue in it, the audience, I knew they were with me all the time. And I realized the power was that they could see all of those other things. They got all those other things. The only one who didn't realize that he had all of those other things was me. Right. So they're waiting for me to show them. Right. Now, this is fundamental to everything that I do in that world, but I needed to learn that. And it took years to get it. That that I was talking to somebody today at the meeting saying, you know, my job is to recognize what walks on stage as a director, but it's also the same thing as an actor. And then to discern what is equally important, but doesn't walk on stage with you and address that. Typically in my videos, I will address that in dialogue, but that goes back to why all of this knowledge, how it works in a practical sense in what I do now and how important it is. And I have people tell me all the time, I didn't know you were, you know, it's something that they thought was unimportant, but yet informed them dramatically because it filled them out as a whole person. I love that. Would you ever go back into the film industry? I would. It it would have to be very clean. It would have to be, for example, somebody like this lady across the street from me who just did a film in New Mexico and had a terrible time with her director. It would have to do with somebody like that saying, look, I got this film financed. I'd like you to direct it and hand it to me. Right. And then I would read it. And if it was for me, then uh, I would step back into that. It, it is, uh, I think, a level of the art that is uh, very appealing to anybody who's in it. So uh, I have gone back and acted in a couple of things, but that's only where students of mine from film school uh, were making a film, and they call me up and they say, "Hey, uh, Professor Claman, we we uh, I wrote this role for you. Are you interested in doing this? Absolutely, love that. I go book. do it, and it's great because. I'm not looking to make a career of it. I'm not looking to be successful at it. I'm only looking to do my job and be the best, do the best performance I can. And when it's that, and that's what I mean by clean. So when it's clean in that way,
1: you don't need it. You want to be good at it, you do better. And that speaks to being a successful individual is that you're not doing it for the wrong reasons. A lot of people get into the industry because they actually have this weird sensation of wanting to be famous. Yeah. And by the way, I encounter people like that all the time who come to me with podcasting simply because they want to be famous. And I think it's actually the weirdest phenomenon when people go out of their way to tell me that they want to acquire my services and I ask them, why do you want a podcast? And they say, because I want, because I want to be famous. I tell them, Oh, you know, I don't think you understand. I don't sell fame. I sell podcasts, but you know, I know some great people in PR would you like to me introduce you there. And right. then we go from there, you know, yep. <laughs> it's been an awkward con I've had some amazing red flag conversations based on that. But when you have, when you have the right mindset, the way that you just described about it being clean, I like the way you put that, you know, kind of clean reasons first. I I didn't really know what it meant until you described it. That's when you can have a successful career. That's when you start to build off of that because people start to see that value and they want to contribute to it. Yeah. The acting Uh, coach I was talking
2: about, he used to talk about having things lined up to defeat you. And I thought that was, that was wonderful analogy when you walk out on stage you have things lined up to defeat you, oh, you like, have, like what like uh, what? Uh, you, uh, you, the, your lines, the amount you rehearsed the other uh, how the other actor does stuff uh, uh, the audience wanting to be accepted, wanting to be funny, wanting to get another job, wanting to impress somebody an agent who's sitting I mean you have things lined up to defeat you one after another. Right. Uh, a director who's giving you direction that that runs entirely counter to what you know. Uh, and what you know is right. And and so one thing after another, you know, wanting to make a career, wanting to be famous, those are all things lined up to defeat you. And the more you can get rid of those things, the cleaner it is. So so a big part of the job is to, is I think to discern those things for you personally, because everybody's got different ones and different, and certainly at, at different volume levels of, of each one, even though they probably all exist to a certain extent. And to, to uh, figure out how to begin to get those things out of your way because they're in the way when, when you create cleanly with no expectation that you're going to sell it, that you're going to be famous, that you're going to be even liked when you get it out of the way, but you just do your job and you do it the best you know how, based on what, you know, I think those are the most successful and and settled people
1: in this business. I like that a lot. I really do. and did any of that mindset come from childhood at all? How, where did that, where that get instilled in you? Well, I've always
2: been encouraged to pursue my happiness. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm truly an American person in that sense. Yeah. Um, and my father died when I was 11. And so and I had two younger sisters and my mom and my mom was struggling to keep the house and to keep us you know, fed and so on. And it was, it wasn't a terrible story, but it was one in which I had to be the man. I had no choice. Uh, I, I, you know, it was, I had to step up. I had to figure out what it was to be grown up and to be a guy and to take responsibility.
1: That must have been I difficult. did. So, yeah.
2: so I, that probably plays into a lot of what, what, who I am today and, and the
1: perspective I have. Because being a man of the household means that you have to provide value first or, or th- th- provide it all. Can you, allow I think it's
2: on? a response. I think it's a responsibility issue. Uh, you know, for example, I remember walking into my mom's bedroom when I was like 13 and saying to her, uh, telling her about somebody who had gotten in trouble at school. Now my mom loves me and she would do anything for me. However, she said to me, you know, I don't have time. If you get in trouble, you're going to get your get yourself out, and I thought, whoa, now that's responsibility. That I better be careful what I do because I'm going to be sitting there having to deal with it, get myself out. Nobody's going to bail me out. I mean, she would have bailed me out, but 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 nobody's going to. Nobody here has got the time and 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 the the ability to to focus on somebody who's doing bad stuff. So it's going to be up to me, right? And I I decided right then I've got responsibility, and then that went to responsibility for my sisters, for my mom, for, for all of those things, which carries on to this day. Got it. You know, with my kids, certainly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And with your kids today, what do they do now? Well, my oldest who's 35
2: <clears throat> is in the art business. He, um, he is an entrepreneurial guy. Huh. Sounds familiar. Uh, he work Yeah. He works with a couple of major artists. He uh, facilitates a whole bunch of things for them. He's an artist himself, but he he is a reliable facilitator for things like uh, framing of fine art, shipping, packing, and shipping. Uh, he builds a lot you know a lot of crates. They they, they, they ship things to all over the world. Wow. He curates. He curated recently an exhibition at the Long Beach Museum of Art. Uh, he so he's he's pretty well placed in that business. My uh, 33 year old uh, is a uh, basketball coach, the the associate head coach at Southern Utah University. They won (laughs) 21, they won 21 and five two years ago, and then they won 23 games in a full season last year. And so they're doing way better than they've ever done in their history. So I'm very proud of him that he's on his way to being a Division One head coach. Wow! um, Hopefully before long. And then my 19 year old daughter is she's I think heading towards probably. Being a child therapist, if not a pediatrician, um, she's in her first year of college right now. And then wow. my 15 year old is a pretty. His older brothers, the two, my two sons, and then my stepson, were all college basketball players. And the one who coaches now played professionally. He's on his way to being a professional basketball player easily. Whoa, he's uh, very, very, very skilled, and um, so just got to. Keep him, you know, I I see the things you learn this with your kids. The thing, the idea of things being lined up to defeat you, you see the things that are lined up to defeat them as a parent hmm. uh, way quicker than they see it. And your job as a parent, if you care, is to spend uh, persistent time for years working to at least soften those things and get them out of their way. So that's what, uh, he's got different issues than my other kids have. My 33 year old worked too hard. So that was something I had to get him to back off somewhat. So he didn't, you know, he walked into games ready to play. I said, it's not about being the workout champion of the world. It's about winning games and being that. And he was good. I mean, he's, you know, he's six, nine and. Led the nation in three-point shooting percentage. Six, per senior oh, my yeah. God. Okay. But, uh, you know, he shot 48.4% from three-pointer, number one in the nation as, as a senior in college at that size. So he was wow. a remarkable player. Wow. And and But the deal with him was you, you're working too hard. You need to back off a little bit. The deal with this one is a little more typical. He's got the whole – where that one was not a natural athlete, which is why he worked so hard. This guy is a total natural athlete, and – so the idea is to get him to work harder. And he's doing pretty good.
1: Good. So, I mean, but look at that, though. You, we, This podcast started talking about what it means to have the, a strong foundation as an artist. But I think one thing that I didn't expect the conversation to go towards that I kind of realized last minute was that having a strong foundation isn't just important for the, the decisions of now, but it's also important for the legacy moving forward. And, I mean, look at your legacy. Look at these, these children of yours you know, well, and, and your cool. children too. Yeah. yeah they're pretty yeah. darn cool. If you ask me, yeah. that's, that's pretty great. They're so, great congratulations, family. Richard. I'm, I'm you, very man. envious as a, as an aspiring father one day, I, I'm, I'm single. I'm a bachelor. I, I would love to, you know, find a wife and raise a family at one point in my life. I really hope that my family can reach the caliber of what you've de- described today. So that's really well, about.
2: then it will because it's just, you know, really is the will and, and the willingness to do it and the, the focus off of yourself onto them. Really and uh, it is, and for all of you ladies listening to this podcast, Chaz is available <laughs> and is looking to get married and have a relationship and raise wonderful kids and be a great dad. Just so if that's what you're looking for, he, I think he's given you the contact information, go ahead and
1: contact him and get, and, and, and get in line. You never know who he's gonna choose. I really hope people go on my website and fill out the contact form and ask me on a date on the contact (laughs) form. I really want that professional line breached. I really want that. That'd be great.
2: That's, I I don't think I've
1: ever heard that in a podcast before. No, neither It's brilliant. (laughs) Well, Richard, it's really been a treat having you on this podcast before we end the show. What is the best way for people to listening to reach out to you?
2: Well, you can either call me, uh on my work cell phone which is 310 251 0434 310 2510434 or you can email me at Richard at cloudwalkerfilms that's
1: f-i-l-m s dot com all that information will be displayed in the show notes of this episode Thank and you. finally richard the final question that i ask everybody everybody on this podcast what will
2: you be famous for? That's a very interesting question. Because what I realized in writing these novels, which are at its core, uh, what creativity should be, which is being private, the willingness to be private in public. Now I'm doing it through other characters. However, it is very revealing about me and my philosophy about a ton of things right, Uh, that comes through my characters and comes through the situations. What I realized is that writing these novels uh, is the best legacy I could possibly leave. Uh, There could be 10 generations down the road, kids who could read this, read these novels and say, oh, that's who that guy was. I totally get him. They never would have gotten to knowing me in person as well as they get it through this. And I think it's one of the wonderful creative drivers um, that you do leave a legacy. And so I think in the end that that's what I'm going to be known for. Uh, and all the other stuff is not going to matter that much.
1: Richard Clayman, everyone. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Jeff.
0: Thank you for listening. This podcast releases bi-weekly on Fridays. To attend one of our networking events, visit the registration link in the show notes or go to www.mrthrive.com. Would you like to be a guest on our show? Email chaz at mrthrive.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.